Good day, Scraptitude faithful, and welcome to Tim Talk 006. Last week on 005, we crushed UFC 264 going 8 for 12 on fight picks. This week we're going to aim to do even better despite the lopsided nature of the event. Odds makers and matchmakers alike decided, well, fuck it. We don't need competitive contests, but we're here to sort through the weeds and find the value. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's get into it. Scrap, 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 scrap. I'm mean, I'm fierce, I'm mad, I'm rude, I got that pro fighter attitude. I'm in the octagon with the podcast on, let's talk about it on Scrapitude. You know I've been the best, grab my belt and begin to flex so wild, I might hit the rep. We got the winner circle segments and the two on five takeaways with Tim and Jeff, so just kick back. Grab a brew, it's fight night, so you know what we have to do, whether a power punch or a grapple move. You know we got you covered on Scrapitude, so just kick back. Grab a brew, it's fight night, so you know what we have to do, whether a power punch or a grapple move. You know we got you covered on Scrapitude, yeah. Scrap, 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 yeah. Welcome to 006, y'all. This is Timothy E. Lewis doing what I do best, taking you coast to coast, doing the most. And I am joined today by a lovely Aperol Spritz that my even more lovely girlfriend made for me. And, well, y'all know what I do here. I always talk about how I want to get in and get out with these podcasts, and then I talk for... 25 minutes about imagination and numbers and vision, our future plans, how I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, the whole nine yards. And that's why this shit always takes so long. And well, the real ones, they're always reaching out to me, Tim, we don't give a shit how long it is. We'll listen to your voice all fucking day. And to that I say, well, you're a liar because I can't stand my voice all fucking day. I hear it enough. So we're going to try to expedite this process here. Y'all were with me last week when I said we're mobilizing from just doing the entire fight card to now highlighting a few specific fights. In case you didn't catch us last week, the reasoning is twofold. One, well, we're working on tiered content here, and I can't give it all away. I need to structure it such that there is levels to this. There will be a Patreon. There will be a subscription-based service. And the reason why is because what I am doing, what I am saying, it works. And also because y'all can't get this shit elsewhere for free. You gotta come to me. This is the horse's mouth. I am the stallion. (laughs) Just tell my girlfriend that. Uh, So, today I picked four bouts. And the bouts that I selected had to do largely with the fact that the odds for so many of these contests are extremely lopsided. I mean, Islam Makachev is over a minus 800 on some odds makers. Amanda Lemos over a minus 500. We've got multiple 3 to 1, near 4 to 1 favorites on this card. It's rare that we see the matchmakers structure a card this way. Generally, they want competitive bouts. They want a competitive spectacle. But in an event like this where the previous main event fell through and you got to keep fighters active, you got to keep bread on the table, uh, 
they signed the dotted line. They signed up for these events, and that's where we are. Where we that's why we are where we are. But for the sake of this podcast, and for the sake of the point of this podcast, which is getting an advantage in the gambling industry on mixed martial arts, we want to look at the odds that are more attractive. So that's how I selected these fights. And the first one up is Miles Johns versus Anderson Dos Santos. Miles Johns is hovering between a minus 165 and a minus 188, depending on the bookie that you're using. Anderson Dos Santos, round my a plus 150. So this one is a coming-of-age story for Miles Johns at 27 years old, facing the 35-year-old Anderson Dos Santos, a still dangerous guy who's looking to prove that he has what it takes to hack it in the UFC. Miles Johns began wrestling in third grade. So, as I'm always speaking to, I like guys that start young. And he continued that all the way up through college, to which he got a scholarship before dropping out to begin his mixed martial arts career. One of the things you'll notice about Miles Johns is he's a very compact athlete. He throws a ton of heat with his strikes, and he mixes in his wrestling profile. He worked his way up through LFA, went to the Contender Series, and is now in the UFC. He's done the work. Meanwhile, Anderson Dos Santos is a career journeyman, more or less, known for submitting Ricky Simon in 2016. Dos Santos being 30 at the time, and Simon, a fledgling 23 years old. Now, by the way that I'm presenting these facts, you can tell which way I'm going here. I'm not trying to mislead you. This isn't a plot line with a twist at the end. I'm being straightforward here. And in doing so, I got to tell you, Dos Santos has lost two out of the last three UFC fights in lopsided striking affairs, while Miles Johns has won three of four UFC, uh, UFC fights, outstriking his opponents in all three wins and notching two knockdowns in the process. Yes, I'm leaning Miles Johns. The main edge, if any, that Dos Santos has here is experience. And I say if any because, as I previously stated, Miles John's wrestling career, which I consider a combat sport, dates all the way back to the time he was in third grade. This man has been gritting and grinding for a long time. But Dos Santos, in the MMA context, has more experience, more than doubling Miles John's fight total. However, that experience, dubious. A lot of the time was spent in the regional Brazilian scene, and that explains his 41% pad rate. I don't mean to call out the Brazilians, but they've got a lot of small organizations there where dudes are fighting four times a week. Uh, it's kind of like some of these Chinese leagues you see coming out. Opponents have low win percentages, certain guys are stacking their resume, and then they move on to a little bit bigger of an organization. That was the case for Anderson Dos Santos until he got to the UFC. However, he has a 41% pad rate, so that dramatically takes down the opponent win rate of 70%, which is just so-so to begin with, a little above average. But that 41% pad rate indicates that Anderson Dos Santos has had a soft journey to the UFC. And that's also supported by when you see who he's beaten versus who he's lost to. He's largely been a can crusher throughout his career, and has then failed when facing a jump in competition. In terms of the fight script, I think that Miles Johns 
should be able to dictate where this one takes place. He possesses an edge in power. His striking, while not extremely developed, should be at an advantage. And he'll also be able to determine where the fight takes place. And that detail matters perhaps more than anything. So-so strikers can get by if they are strong wrestlers capable of adding that additional stimuli to their opponents, being able to say, hey, I can put you on the ground, you better drop them hands, and then boom, they come upstairs. With a guy like uh, Miles Johns, that's a dangerous proposition. He might only have a 66-inch reach, but similar to the short-limbed Cody Garbrandt, that can create some tremendous rotational force. Miles Johns takes advantage of that. So while I have my reservations betting against a Brazilian with the conglomeration of names like Anderson Dos Santos, that could well be the equivalent to Frank Jones coming stateside, like Anderson Silva, Junior Dos Santos, two UFC former champions, perhaps better left in their own respective lives. Anderson Dos Santos has not done a good job justifying the birth name he was given. So you can get Miles Johns at minus 165 on DraftKings right now, and I think that's a steal. He probably should be as much as a 2-1 to favorite. He's 27 years old to the 35-year-old Anderson Dos Santos. This is an example of a guy who's a good athlete with a decent skill profile entering their prime and building their record upon a journeyman who is exiting their prime. Next up, I'm covering Khalid Taha versus Sergey Morozov. Me, my my first introduction to Taha was his fight against Rayoni Barcelos, and that kind of made me a fan of him. No, he didn't come close to winning the fight, but he showed off the best ability, durability. Always saying that. He has it in spades. He can take a shot, and that's reflected by the fact that he's never lost a fight in his 16 professional fight career by knockout or TKO. Khalid Taha is a bad man, a tough dude, and in this one, he's hovering around a minus 150 according to odds makers. That's why I was a little bit disappointed once I got into the numbers, because I wanted to float down the Khalid Taha lazy river. I just wanted to be able to check the boxes and say that my guy here was going to win. But looking at the numbers, that's what I do. I gained a higher level of appreciation for the Kazakh, Sergei Morozov, to the point where I assigned him a favorite in my personal odds. I suspect the reason why Morozov is an underdog in this one, despite some of the factors clearly slanting his way, is because he only has one UFC fight, and therefore the exposure to him is limited. And in that exposure, he ran into a guy by the name of Umar Nurmagomedov, that is the uh, highly acclaimed and undefeated cousin of Khabib Nurmagomedov. He was grounded five times in that fight and ultimately succumbed to submission via rear naked choke. So I think recency bias may be working against Sergei Morozov here, and that's always something that a keen better will exploit. Going through the numbers, they also softened my position on Taha. He has outstanding durability, but he relies upon it as opposed to defensive fundamentals and basic concepts of self-preservation. Now, 
he's gotten away with it because he's got some serious power, boasting a 1.6% knockdown rate across his four UFC bouts. That's two knockdowns in four UFC fights. But both these guys are durable. Between the two men, there's only one knockout loss attributed to Sergei Morozov in 2016 to Josh Reddinghouse, and that's a loss that he would later avenge. So these guys, they are, they're ballsy, they are unafraid, not timid, and they both trust their respective chins. And because each of these men win at a similar rate and they're both in their physical primes, we got to go a little deeper when analyzing their statistical profiles and their physical profiles. The attributes when these other factors are even that I tend to look at include athleticism, versatility, and experience. Athleticism may go to Taha, but I don't think it is a sizable advantage. Not so compared to the versatility and experience, which are no contest in favor of Morozov. Experience-wise, Morozov well outpaces Taha. He's got an 8% higher win rate and also possesses a 14% lower pad rate. So he's facing tougher competition, and not only is he facing tougher competition, but he spent less time early in his career padding his record against guys with very few fights or losing records. Additionally, He mixes up his approach. He's got good boxing fundamentals and some sneaky kicks that he works into those combinations, but he also mixes up his approach, showing good takedown entries and a brand of positional control that allows him to leverage his ground and pound. So if I'm going to guess who's going to dictate where this fight takes place, it's going to be Sergei Morozov, who will be looking to exploit the 61% takedown defense of of Khalid Taha. Additionally, Taha doesn't even attempt to work the takedowns into his game himself. So, when it's a three-round fight and anything can swing the balance, somebody able to notch control time is oftentimes that balance swinger, if you will. Taha just hasn't popped in any regard throughout his career, and if he's going to win this one, He's going to have to make Sergei Morozov exchange with him. He's going to have to catch that chin up in the air with one of those meat hooks. It's absolutely possible, but when we're looking at uh, judging the odds and trying to find value, that's not the archetype that I really want to put down money on for a minus 150 favorite. I'm liking Morozov here by decision, but the money line right there at plus 130, I'll take that. Next up is Jeremy Stevens versus Mateusz Gamrot. He's Polish. I'm Polish. I still ain't going to act like I know how to say Gamrot's full name. Right now, he's hovering between a minus 210, minus 220 favorite on FanDuel and DraftKings, whereas Stevens is firm, flat, plus 175. We don't need to make this one compl- complicated. 35 years old might not seem that old uh, for a Jeremy Stevens believer or somebody that's followed his career or just somebody who's evaluating athletes in general. But when we consider that he's absorbed nearly 1,200 significant strikes in his UFC career, which accounts for just 33 
of his 46 professional MMA fights. And then we go a step further and see that he's just 1-4 and four in his last five. The word shop-worn does come to mind. And now Stevens is making his return to the lightweight division to face a blossoming contender in Mateo Gamera, who boasts a 95% win rate against stellar competition. Competition that has a 79% win rate overall. As we well know, little heathen Stevens has always possessed that one-punch fight-changing power. In 2008, he sent RDA's skull into the nosebleeds. Ten years later, he recorded a brutal knockout of Josh Emmett in the second round. But that amounted to Stevens' last knockdown before his five-fight winless streak that he's now on. Folks know Stevens, and maybe that's why he's getting bet up here and not a more drastic underdog. And a lot of folks just probably don't know who Gamrod is. And so let me give you a little bit of perspective here. He's a European ADCC champion and a former two-division KSW champion fighting out of Poland. KSW is a real solid organization. Uh, It's uh, one of the better organizations that exists in Europe. Actually, we just saw um, Dracus Duplessis, who fought in the organization, come and land two big knockout victories in the UFC. They've got some for-real fighters in there, and it's a great bridge for fight or a great bridge organization for fighters to compete in before coming to the UFC. Despite being a submission grappling expert, Gamrot also shows very good takedowns in chain wrestling. He'll transition between foot sweeps, double legs, single legs. He shows a lot of creativity, and in combination with that, he has the cardio to relentlessly pursue those takedowns. He's also a technical and defensively responsible striker and a southpaw. There's a lot of attributes here that really that we should really like about Gamera in exclusion from just this matchup. I think he's going to be a real contender someday, probably in the next year and a half. I could see him being in that top seven range. We're going to see a lot of turnover in this UFC lightweight division as some name equity fades and we start to see these new guys really build themselves up. Uh, your Fazayevs, your... You know, I'm not even going to get into the whole naming thing. There's just a lot of guys right now that are maybe not even in the top 15 that are going to not just be there, but be in the upper echelon of that mix sooner rather than later. To cap this analysis off, Stevens has a 61% win rate in his mixed martial arts career. We're nearing the end here. As I said, I believe Gamrot's going to be a contender soon and should probably be a more stark favorite. I had him in as a minus 250 here, which is bigger than the odds suggest, and I expected to come in light. I expected that my odds that I constructed before seeing other odds makers would be too conservative because that's, that's what I try to do here. In spotting value, I try not to over-assess anything. So the fact that I have him as a bigger favorite than oddsmakers, well, that says to me, this is a fight where you can put some serious money on it and feel real confident. I'm liking that money line. I also like Gamro by decision. The last fight that I'll be covering today is Marion Renault versus Misha Tate. 
on a fight card with a lot of lopsided odds, I, I was kind of surprised at how close this fight is according to FanDuel and DraftKings. Maybe it's a belief in Renault. Maybe it's a lack of belief in Misha. What I do know here is that the numbers on Marion Renault are not flattering. She's among the UFC's oldest competitors at 44. She hasn't won a fight since 2018, and she holds a 53% career winning percentage. If that's not enough, here's a little qualitative nugget for you. She's been speaking about how this is her last fight, how she's done with MMA, how she's happy to be out, and how she's seeing the other side now, her life post this sport. That doesn't sound like somebody who's prepared to play spoiler. That sounds like somebody who's ready to cash a check. And I would not be surprised at all if that was Marion Renault's prerogative. She's in a position where this is the last fight of her contract. She's old, borderline matronly. (laughs) And uh, it's a great position for the UFC to be putting one of their more popular female fighters in. And that is Misha Tate, former UFC champion, had a well-known trilogy with Ronda Rousey. It's, this is a person that they can easily build upon, somebody that can fill uh, slots on pay-per-view cards on the main card. The main question is whether or not Misha can come back where she left off. I like her chances of doing so. At 34 years old, she's 10 years younger than her opponent, and The prime for women in mixed martial arts is a little bit different for men because they don't have to deal so much with the drop-off in testosterone production and the resulting uh, decline in physical performance that we see among so many men as they eclipse that 34, 35-year-old benchmark and head into the twilight of their career. Recent images also show that Misha's in great shape. I mean, that should come as no surprise. She's always been a dedicated competitor. And at 10 years younger than Marianne Renault, conventional wisdom suggests that she should win. She also should be able to take this fight where she wants it most, into the grappling arena. Renault has a takedown defense of just 50% through 12 UFC fights. Meanwhile, Misha lands over a, a 0.5 takedowns per round. So you look at that and the numbers jive in such a way that she should spend a lot of this fight in a controlling position, notching control time. The broader question here is, can Misha Tate make a splash in the division? And I don't think that this fight indicates much either way unless she looks horrible. If she loses, most certainly fucking not. But I expect her to shake off the rust and hand Renault a unanimous decision defeat. At minus 135 on DraftKings, I think Misha is a steal. And I suppose just for the sake of doing so, I'll touch on the main event of the evening. It doesn't feel like a podcast unless I get into the biggest fight. Islam Makachev versus Tiago Moises was not supposed to be the main event. It stepped up in this slot and I don't hate it just because it gives one of Lightweight's premier premier up-and-comers the chance to shine. The thing about Tiago Moises is This fight, he shouldn't be in this position right now. And not because Moises isn't a a decent fighter, but more so because Makachev should have had somebody higher up the rankings. I know Dan Hooker's been calling his name. This was the time to fight Dan Hooker right here. Not after this fight, but right here, 
right now. But the RDA fight fell through. Michael Chandler pretended like he didn't know who Makachev was. Uh, a lot of guys have not been looking to engage in this scrap. Why? Well, I don't believe Makachev is the is necessarily the heir apparent to Khabib Nurmagomedov, but that's the stigma that currently exists. And he does have the combination of attributes that could have him doing what Khabib did to this division. That said, Khabib's special. Somebody needs to step up and fight Islam. As a minus 850 on FanDuel, minus 675 on DraftKings, and fluctuating between those benchmarks on various odds makers, the matchmakers didn't compose a competitive fight here. A brave, it, it'll take a brave man to place a wager on Tiago Moises. We saw him get absolutely dog-walked by Demir Ismagulov. I just don't think he has anything in this contest. Anyways, I appreciate you all so much for tuning into this episode. Like I said, we're keeping it a little shorter this week. This card overall, it didn't give me much to talk about, but I will have all my picks posted officially. I'm thinking I'll do it via Instagram story, via fleets. Fleets are disappearing, so I'm going to have to find a new medium. Uh, trying to figure out the best way to do this, but it's all short term because, like I said, we're working on tiered content. Last week went 8 for 12, so if you were taking up what I was putting down, you were making some motherfucking money. Uh, but that's it for today, y'all. Uh, if I could ask some things for you from you, if you enjoy this program, please take the time to subscribe, rate, and review to this here podcast, Scrap Tube Podcast. Two to three episodes a week. We doing it unlike anybody else doing it. Also, peep our YouTube as Scrap Two Philly. Smash subscribe there. Need that. Scrap Two can be found on Instagram and Twitter at Scrap Two. You can find me on Twitter at Timothy E. Lewis. I hope y'all have a blessed weekend. I hope y'all win some bread. Peace. <laughs>